this week's episode of The Space, we're going to talk about virtual learning, e-learning, something that uh, most students across all provinces have been experiencing over the last 12 months. We'll also talk about distributed work and virtual work, as these are two things that we've been forced to uh, do during the pandemic and uh, likely will continue to some degree after the pandemic. Definitely. I think, you know, here in Ontario, Blake, as you know, uh, even before the pandemic, uh, uh, our premier, Doug Ford, uh, wanted to move ahead with this, having uh, at least, uh, apparently it was initially he wanted to have four uh, courses uh, for each student uh, moving forward, be online. And I guess because of an uprising, the unions uh, not agreeing with it, it's been brought down to two. And then, of course, the pandemic hit. And now everyone's doing it. Everyone has to. I don't agree with a lot of things that uh, Premier Ford says, but I do. I did agree with that one. And, and you know, virtual learning has been around since at least the mid-90s. The virtual school that's run by the Toronto District School Board, I was one of the four founding teachers of that virtual school back in 1999. So it's been around for a long time. But it was a very difficult model to fit in with the existing structures of education. In particular, unions had a hard time with it because they didn't know what virtual teachers were doing. They weren't doing the same kind of job as in-class, face-to-face teachers were doing. So that was one issue. The other issue was that the curriculum that was being written by board curriculum writers was not designed for online learning. It was designed for face-to-face learning with students. You know, all of these things were in contradiction to one another. So what happened when we started the virtual school in 99 was it was a global virtual school. We had students from as far away as China and Australia learning both synchronously and asynchronously. Can you imagine back then? That was a time of dial-up. We didn't have high-speed internet. So a lot of our time was spent troubleshooting technology issues and connectivity issues with students. We were given curriculum we pretty much had to throw out and write our own on the fly. The technology we were given was inappropriate for online learning. It was designed as a troubleshooting technology for telecommunication firms, for raising trouble tickets and things like that. So it was a real learning experience. But anyway, virtual schooling has been around for a long time. And I agree with Ford because had students had more experience learning online, had teachers had more experience writing curriculum, developing curriculum, and teaching for an online learning experience, we wouldn't have been in such a struggle as we are now with the pandemic. For sure. And I spoke with a uh... Uh, a trustee, Shelley Laskin, here in Toronto. Uh, she's been a trustee for quite some time, even was a, a chair uh, for, for, for a little while. And one of her concerns was that it's all fine um, for, for major, major cities, but there's no confirmed bandwidth through, all, let's say, all parts of Ontario, right? For sure, Ottawa, Toronto, et cetera. But what do you do? For those people that are are north of the big cities, 
It's a great question, and, and you're right. That's what used to be called the digital divide, where some people have access to computers and technology at home, their own individual machines, where others do not. And then, of course, you have the connectivity issues, bandwidth, internet access, and that kind of thing. There's not much to say about that other than we have to move quickly as a nation to ensure that we have broadband accessibility to all citizens. And I know this is something that's on Prime Minister Trudeau's agenda, is to increase the broadband capacity in Canada. Canada, and that should help. But there's no doubt right now that's one of the struggles that uh, school boards have is making sure that everybody has the same quality of access. So for, for a lot of the schools, they have their own laptops, they wheel them into a classroom, and students can borrow the laptops. But if you don't have the funding for that and you don't have the resources, it makes it difficult for sure. For sure, whether it's northern Ontario or the interior, interior of BC, uh, you know, it's going to, you have to connect those communities and not just have the major centers like Toronto, Vancouver, Montreal, Edmonton, whatever, right? You've got to, they've got to find a way of, of connecting the outback. Even in major cities, the amount of people operating online for work and for learning, even, even in centers like Toronto and Vancouver, the, the internet slows down. Your connectivity slows down dramatically during the course of a day. And even in major metropolitan centers, it's a problem. We need better connectivity. We do, for sure, definitely. Now, um, moving forward, how, how do you think, how would teachers incorporate e-learning into a BRICS and mortar school because another thing that um, some of the other teachers I've spoken to uh, have said that as we as the students start coming back, there are certain families, certain parents uh, that aren't going to have their they don't feel safe sending their kids back right away. So you're going to have some kids learning from home, and some kids learning actually in the school, in the classroom. That requires a bit of a decision with respect to the technologies that you're going to use and how you're going to use them. So when we talk about virtual learning and e-learning, there are different kinds, and I think it's important for people to understand this. We talk about synchronous learning, which is like Zoom and uh, GoToMeeting, where it's real time, where you learn real time and everybody's online at the same time. And then there's the asynchronous component, which means learning at any time. In other words, doesn't matter where you are, doesn't matter what time of the day it is, you can jump in and start learning, start participating, submit assignments, and that kind of thing. So it's important that you find the right blend. And if you've got a mixed situation, as you just described, where you have some parents who are uncomfortable sending their students back to classrooms and others that are comfortable doing it, then you have an inequality. So it would be up to the teacher to try to figure out what the mix is. And I would suggest just off the top of my head that anything that you would be doing in the classroom, you would also be connecting in students via Zoom or one of the other conferencing systems so that people can participate even though they're still at home. So they get the benefit of the face-to-face -face classroom experience by being connected to that classroom via Zoom. In terms of the other element, the asynchronous element, learning from anywhere, that's a perfect model for doing work outside of the classroom. In other words, collaborating. If you're doing some group work, for example, that's the platform you could be using to do group work with your team members. For asking questions about assignments, that could be done in an asynchronous format rather than a synchronous format. So I think it's a matter of balancing the two. Definitely, definitely. Uh, one of the teachers I spoke to said that, you know, online learning is best suited to an older 
uh, or especially to do older students, due to the uh, independence and responsibility it requires. Um, you know, one of our colleagues said, you know, kindergarten kids, for example, are tougher to care for uh, for safety reasons. It's tough to educate them online and keep them, you know, engaged online. Yeah, fair point. And I, I think that, that the teachers that, that have that perspective are correct. It's not as well suited to elementary school students, number one, because they, they need that face-to-face -face interaction. Exactly. Uh, yeah. I mean, she's, she, sorry to wrap but she's, she sort of said to me, one of the, one of the, the big parts about kindergarten is getting kids to learn how to get along with other kids. Absolutely true. Yeah. You know, again, there are very different kinds of online learning experiences. Some of them are really good and some of them are really bad. Ones that sort of put the technology at the front rather than the learner are the ones that I wouldn't consider to be particularly good. But with elementary school students, you're right. It it takes a lot of discipline to learn and to work effectively online. You have to be very self-disciplined. But like anything else, you know, when I was reading some of the comments from the Toronto District School Board's survey, people were saying, I get distracted at home because I've got chores to do or I start playing around on my other devices. But that's life. I mean, we all get distracted that way. So that that's a discipline. You have to train yourself to set aside time to do your work. I know when I was a, a virtual school teacher with the Toronto District School Board in 99, I spent almost three years living and working completely virtually. I didn't see a student. And it took a lot of discipline. I spent way too much time working with not enough separation from work and life. I had students from Hong Kong and Australia, New Zealand and Europe. Everybody was on a different time zone. So I had to make myself available to students when they needed me. So when students were posting things in the environment that I was using, I had to be there and be able to respond to them. So it's a very different kind of experience. Not ideally suited to elementary school students, but I think it's important that we don't adopt this one or the other approach. I mean, there's a blended model which works extraordinarily well, where you use online learning for the elements of your program where it's best suited. Where, in fact, it's better than face-to-face -face learning. And you use face-to-face -face learning for, for assignments that are better suited to that kind of experience. For sure. I mean, one of my one of my the teachers I spoke with said, you know, it's with the online learning now, and it only really being online learning, the 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 work to life balance is just thrown out of whack for the teachers, right? You know, because when does their day end? Right. You know, and that was the challenge that we experienced in the early days of the virtual school. You just never knew when to turn it off. And you had to be somewhat disciplined about that. But again, this is a design consideration. This is something that you have to sit down, plan out, think about it, make sure you convey it to the students so they understand when you're available, virtual office hours and that kind of thing, and when you're not. But learning is something that should go on all the time. So the nice thing about virtual learning is that it allows students to learn when they're motivated to learn. So if they feel at 11 o'clock at night they've got a really good idea for an essay they have to write, then they should be able to get online and start working through that process. It's important when we think about virtual learning that we think about it as a completely different kind of experience. The challenge I think a lot of teachers are having is they have a prescribed curriculum from the boards of education and they're trying to wrap the virtual experience around that. And it doesn't 
necessarily work. As I said earlier, people that write curriculum based on what's required by the Ministry of Education, they write curriculum for face-to-face -face experiences because that's how they learned. A lot of that curriculum is not portable to online learning. It just doesn't work. There are things that work really well. So let me give you a really good example of why I think online learning needs to be part of the whole education mix. In a typical classroom, what happens? Well, you have a teacher at the front of the room, you have students dispersed on their desks, and the teacher is basically providing a bunch of information to the students that they think they have to learn based on the curriculum, and students are sitting there busily writing notes and things like that, and the teacher asks if there's any questions, and there's usually, oh, four or five students in the class that always have their hand up, and they're always answering the question, and the rest of the people sit there with their arms crossed and don't say a word. We have no idea whether they understand or don't understand, but the classroom tends to be run by those more engaged students, those students who are more comfortable putting their hand up and talking in class than students who are maybe more introverted. If you take that experience and move it into an online environment, and I, when I say online, it's a discourse environment where everybody's ideas get to be heard. So if you have a forum where everybody can weigh in with their thoughts and their ideas in a single environment, and it doesn't matter how quickly you get your hand up. You can think about it, you can reflect on it at, as I say, at 11 o'clock at night. If you have an idea related to what you learned in the classroom, you can jump into that asynchronous environment and put that idea there. So there's a democratization of ideas that happens in a virtual environment that often doesn't happen in a face-to-face -face environment. You also eliminate a lot of the biases, whether that be race, or gender biases that exist in a face-to-face -face classroom. Online, what stands out is the quality of the ideas, not the person saying them. For sure. But one of the things that did jump out to me about that survey, about the survey that we got from TDSB, was that it said 84% of students say they, they learn better in person as opposed to online, and they prefer in-person learning because of that. Right. That is because that's what they're used to. I mean, let, let's be honest. If you've been doing something your entire life one way, and all of a sudden somebody says, oh, no, now we have to do it completely differently. Of course, your answer is going to be, I preferred it the way I was used to because it was easier. Going back to Ford's comment before the pandemic, if we had given students experience learning online throughout their educational career, then we wouldn't see that number being that high. But because we haven't, many students have not had the virtual learning experience ever before, and that, of course, coupled with the anxiety created by the pandemic and, and the social element of that, not just in school, but outside of school, would skew that number. So I, I don't look at that number as being very realistic because, as I say, when you're used to doing things one way and all of a sudden someone says, no, you can't do that way anymore, you have to do it this way, your first reaction is to say, well, I preferred it the way I used to do it because I'm familiar with it. I know how to do it that way. So it's just a time factor. It's a learning factor. And it takes a fair bit of skill to be able to teach online. And I don't think teachers have had that experience either. It's not just the students that haven't had experience with online learning. It's the teachers. Back in early 2000, there was a program 
that was implemented by the Ontario Ministry of Education called the PLP program, Professional Learning Program. And it was something that the ministry said, we think all teachers need to engage in ongoing professional learning, professional development. So they started this program. I wrote the first courses for teaching teachers how to work and learn and design curriculum for online learning. Now, unfortunately, it became a political issue because the ministry wanted to make it mandatory. And the union managed to beat that program down. So it was removed. And then teachers had no access to that professional learning about how to teach and learn online. So all the way along, it's been blocked. Collective agreements have blocked it. Unions have blocked it. And now we've left the students in this sink or swim kind of scenario with the pandemic. Yeah, you know, one of the uh, one of the teachers I, I spoke through uh, uh, through emails and chatting with came back to me and said something interesting. She said the biggest struggle as an educator was that although there were online workshops available to all the teachers, they were elective. She said I would have liked seen them be mandatory, mandatory training to ensure there was an equal account of all training among my, you know, my colleagues. I knew everybody had been there. Everybody had done the same course. There was no one going, oh yeah, you know, I, what are we doing here? Right. And, and that's part of this issue around the structures, the, the educational model that we use, which really fundamentally hasn't changed for over a hundred years. It's antiquated. That's another subject for another podcast. But the system is very structured and very strict. And there's collective agreements in place that defines your job as a teacher. Anything outside of that, you don't have to do. So I'm not sure the ministry or the school boards could make something like that mandatory without getting a fair bit of pushback from the union. True. I mean, there are some people who who have uh, here in Ontario even just said it's it's all just you know, political based. It's uh, the progressive conservative government trying to save money. What, by implementing online learning? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Well, I, I don't believe that's true. You know, because their, their thing is that you need, you need to have in person. And what the government's trying to do is move more to online where you don't need as many teachers. You don't need as much support in their mind. Now, I don't know if you agree with that. That's just something that was brought up to me recently. But I thought, okay, uh, so you, you, you've got a situation where you need to add additional supports for special needs students, et cetera. How do you do that in a highly regimented system? Right. Well, I, and that is a challenge. I, I don't believe this is a move to eliminate teachers. I don't think that's what's happening here at all. This is the way of the world. Virtual learning has been going on for a long time. So if we look at in the United States, and they are much further ahead than we are. So if you look at the the rise of the MOOCs, massive open online courses. Now this started early in the 2000s when the Massachusetts Institute of Technology said, look, all of this content that we have for all our courses really doesn't have a lot of value. So we're going to put it all online for free. And that's what they did. And I think this was around 2001, 2002. MIT took all of their course material and curriculum and put it online for free. Anybody could access it. So hypothetically, it meant that you could go and do a, a course on uh, astrophysics at MIT 
for free. Now you could go and study all the material, gain all the knowledge. Of course, you wouldn't get the degree and you wouldn't also have the context. In other words, the subject matter expert, the professor that understands beyond the information itself, the context, how to apply it, how to, what's the creative thinking element that's involved when you're doing some of these more complex types of exercises. But that started the MOOC programs, the Massive Open Online Courses. Every single major university in the U.S. has them. And they are brilliant. It was actually driven by the Department of Labor, not by the Department of Education, because they realized that there were too many disadvantaged people who couldn't afford to go to university. So if you're living on the south side of Chicago and you have the marks and you are a really good student and you could make it into Harvard, you'd have to have 80,000 U.S. a year to attend, right? And you couldn't afford it. So the idea of these massive open online courses was to say, well, why shouldn't somebody who is lower on the socioeconomic scale, living in a, in a poor area, still have access to the same quality of education as their counterparts who just happen to have the money to afford to go to Harvard or Berkeley or Stanford? So they could take those same courses that those students that were attending in person were taking at a fraction of the cost. So it created a quality of educational opportunity. And I think that's what people need to keep in mind with virtual learning. That's what it does. If you're living in some of the more remote indigenous communities and you can't leave because you're helping to support your family and you can't go to Toronto to attend the University of Toronto and take courses and your family can't afford it, why should you be excluded from that education? And this is where virtual learning really is a great equalizer. But it is a different type of experience. Anybody that's taken some of these courses, and I would put this out to any educator, if you want to take a fabulous course to learn how to learn online and to see the potential of really, really good online learning pedagogy, go and take Stanford's course called Designing New Learning Environments. It's absolutely fantastic. I've taken it. I'm a graduate. It is brilliant. If you want to see how it should be done, take that course. I don't believe they charge for it, or if they do, it's maybe a minor amount. They didn't when I did it. It's a six-week program, and you will see how to develop effective online learning. It really is quite remarkable, and I found the learning experience to far exceed what I would have learned in the same course face-to-face -face over a six-week period. Well, and that's, yeah. that's Stanford University, the famous Stanford University. That's correct. But all of these courses are available to people, for the most part, for free. Stanford, Harvard, MIT, Berkeley, all people have to do is go online through Coursera or Udacity, which are two big companies that are offering it. But you can go right to the universities themselves, and most of them are offering these courses, a lot of them, for free. And the nice thing about them is that because you're not paying for it, you can jump in and out as, as much as you like. If there's a unit of study you're particularly interested in, you can join that and participate in that, but you don't have to participate in the whole thing. So there's no pressure. It's learning for the love of learning, really, which is kind of what the point is, I think. But it is brilliantly done. And, and through one of those courses, teachers will learn how to effectively teach and learn online. The role of the teacher changes in an online learning environment. And this is one of the things that I think teachers are struggling with. No longer are you the, what they call the sage on the stage, the font of all knowledge, 
and you're not the guide on the side. In other words, you're not just a facilitator. To be really good at it, you have to be an active participant in the learning process alongside the students. So you have to be learning. You have to be contributing. You don't just get to sit back and say, here's the assignment, send it to me. You need to be part of the learning experience. The contribution the teacher makes to online learning is context. Because what the benefit of online learning comes from creating context. Everybody has access to content. We go on Google and we can get all the content we want. What we don't have is context. And that's what the teacher provides. The teacher provides the experience that they've had in life, not just as a teacher, but as an individual, as a human being. They provide that context. So to give you a really good example, when I was teaching with the virtual school, I was teaching the book Catcher on the, Catcher on the Rye. And I thought it would be really great to bring in a virtual visiting subject matter expert. Someone that was living in the U.S. in New York City when Ballinger published the book and could talk about what life was like in the U.S., what were the values, what was going on in New York City, and add context to a lot of the imagery that was in the book. And the kids loved it. He came in, he engaged in a conversation and you know, discourse in an online environment that was both synchronous and asynchronous. He asked questions, he answered students' questions, he provided context. It was a brilliant experience. So there's good and there's bad online learning. But I don't think it's going away. Um, you know, that's that's the thing. And I, uh, it's not going away because I think this is where work is going too. And I think people struggling to do distributed work to work remotely are finding the same challenges that students and teachers are also finding. So what you notice nowadays is that people that are working remotely, as most people are, all they're doing is spending their whole day on Zoom. Well, that's not really effective because what they're doing is they're trying to replace their face-to-face -face interaction with a virtual interaction synchronously via Zoom. But the problem is they're not really doing any work. <laughs> they're talking, which is fine. You need that. But then there needs to be, as there is in, in learning, there needs to be in work, a collaborative environment where people are actually doing work where they're working with us, where they're trying to figure out problems and challenges facing their organization so that when they get to the Zoom call, they have something to discuss. They've done their background research. They've looked at what other people are working on. They've seen what people need help with. For sure. And I guess that's why, whether it's in education or it's in, it's in the workforce, uh, you need a moderator. You have to have a boss or a not a, boss, a supervisor, a teacher, someone there to, to bring it back you know, uh, keep it in, in, keep the game in play, keep the game in check like a referee would. To a certain degree, it depends, on, again, on how you design your course. There's huge benefit to integrating virtual learning into the face-to-face -face environment in the same room. There are ways, as I said, I think in our pre-discussion, instead of having students do seat work, why wouldn't they jump into an open collaborative environment where they're doing work, but all the other students can engage and help them, where students can raise questions, when they can start working on rough drafts, but it's all available. And the teacher can jump in and say, hey, you know, I, I really like the ideas you, you're starting to work on for your paper here. Here's some other things you might consider. 
and make that comment available to all the students, not just to that one. So other students can look at it and go, oh, you know, the teacher really liked that and provided some interesting direction. Maybe I could take that idea and apply it to my essay as well. Right? It, that's where the democratization comes along. Because we have to remember, in a traditional learning environment, the learning is a one-to-one, -one, right? I mean, and that's part of the problem, and I guess maybe some of the strength as well. But a student is assigned an essay, they write the paper, they hand it into the teacher, the teacher marks the paper and hands it back to the student, and people that benefit are that teacher and that one student. But if you open it up into a virtual collaborative design, then every time a teacher comes back and marks somebody's paper and says, well, this is really good, or here you have some mistakes, everybody gets to learn from that experience, not just the student writing the paper and the teacher, but everybody says, oh, that's what an A paper looks like. Oh, this is why I didn't do that well. If I learn to do it this way, I can do better, right? So I think that's the strength of online learning. I think it's absolutely critical that we get good at this because it is going to be the future, truly. And, and you know, the other benefits, of course, is the ability to network classrooms from different schools. So you're not limited by geography. And that's a nice thing too. So you could team teach. If we had more time, I could lay out a whole bunch of strategies for teachers, but you can team teach. They are teaching grade 11 English. You could team teach with another grade 11 group out in BC and you could be in Toronto. You're not limited by the physical space of the classroom. You have access to far more collaboration opportunities and more perspectives from other students. You can bring in virtual visiting subject matter experts to talk to students. The sky's the limit. I mean, it really can be a very rich and rewarding experience. I'm not saying we should do away with face-to-face -face learning because I do think that whole socialization piece is really, really important. So it isn't one or the other. But I do think that the education system has not yet tapped into very strong virtual learning models. When I looked at uh, what the TDSB is using, and they're using a platform called Desire to Learn. I know it quite well, and it's good. And it, but basically, it's called a learning management system, and maybe more of a learning content management system. So it places the technology front and center and says, oh, well, here's a really easy way to keep your marks books, or here's a really easy way to, to post assignments for people, or here's an easy way for people to post assignments to you. That's all great, but that's really administrivia. That's not learning. <laughs> the real learning comes when you have an idea that everybody gets to weigh in on. Where students can ad advance theories and where others can test theories against research, that's deep learning. There's a way to build that knowledge collectively as a learning community with all the students benefiting from the knowledge that each student brings into the classroom. And that's a really powerful learning model and also a lot of fun for students. But what, what I see happening is the technology is placed at the front and we're trying to follow a prescribed curriculum and it seems not to leave a lot of leeway for the teachers to be creative outside of the curriculum or to add on or to make that uh, curriculum richer through their own personal experiences. Is there a way that you can see educators can um, engage uh, special needs students online, or is that more required in person? You know, I uh, 
I grew up uh, in high school, it was called a learning disability then. My eyes were quicker than my mind. I saw a math problem, you know, five times five equals uh, blank minus five. And I would quickly write down 25, not realizing, well, actually the answer needed to be 20. So, I mean, I had, I had to utilize tutors and stuff to get through. Um, that's what I'm trying to think is if online learning can address some of those issues, not only address them or see them, but address them moving forward. Here's the benefit to online learning in that regard. When we're talking about learning disabilities, you know, there's accessibility issues too, right? Some people that are visually impaired, it's much harder for them to see on the screen and they need to have screen readers that read the text back to them. We use um, a speech-to-text software, which converts what we're talking about now into text. I can go back and, and, and edit the text and, and also edit the podcast at the same time. I think the benefit online learning lies in the technology itself. So a lot of good online learning technology allows you to edit your work multiple times. You can go back and change something. If you've made a mistake, like in your example, if you've done a mathematical equation incorrectly, you can go back and answer it again. In addition, many learning technologies have tutorials. So if you get something wrong, many of the systems out there have an AI algorithm that says, oh, you've made a mistake. Why don't you go back and review this tutorial and then go back and do the question again? And herein lies one of the greatest benefits of online learning. It allows students to be self-directed learners. So I want to tell you a bit of a story, but back in 1994, when I was teaching in a de-streamed classroom at Von Road Collegiate, I designed my very first AI program for learning. And it came about from observing how we treat students of multiple abilities in the same classroom. So the best practice at that time was when students were not working at the grade level, they were removed from the classroom during the period and taken up to the library, to the resource room, where a resource teacher would work with their basic fundamental skills to improve those. Of course, the downside of all of that is it drew attention to the students and their lack of ability in the classrooms. It made them feel isolated. It made them feel that they were not as smart as their peers. And I thought this was a real negative. So I wondered, could I design a software program that would allow students to work independently, to raise their own skill levels while keeping them in the classroom at the same time. So in other words, if you could write a program that says, here is the assignment. And let's say, for example, the assignment was describe how the Toronto Blue Jays won the World Series, because that was what was happening in sports at that time. Write a descriptive paragraph about the Toronto Blue Jays winning the World Series. And you could put certain criteria in it. Your essay must be in the first person. You, you must have an introduction paragraph, a, a main body, and a conclusion. And all the criteria is baked into the assignment. So the student sits down to write that paper. And as they're writing, the AI algorithm is analyzing their writing based on the criteria for the assignment. And let's say that while the student is writing the paper, he's having some problems with using proper tenses. So the algorithm assents this and sends a message to the student saying, you're having some difficulty with tenses in this paragraph. Please review the following tutorial about tenses. So then the student reviews the tutorial and then takes the new knowledge that he has gained from that tutorial session back to correct the problems in the essay. But you'll note in the example I gave, 
the technology is not fixing the problem, is not correcting the paper like spell check will do in most software programs. What it's doing is helping the student understand why they are making those mistakes and showing them how to correct it, but leaving it up to the student to go back and do the corrections themselves. In an online learning environment, students can return to these tutorials whenever they want at their own pace and review them whenever they want to review them. So again, it really reinforces independent learning. And this independent learning can go on outside of regular classroom hours. So online learning can be a real benefit to those with learning disabilities. I began using technology in the classroom in, oh, I guess the mid 90s, mid to late 90s. And it was quite interesting because I think I was the only teacher in the school, certainly that was using a blended model within the classroom technology supported learning within an in-class environment. And I had the benefit of being in the midst of my graduate degree in uh, curriculum and computer applications. So I had access to a whole bunch of advanced learning platforms and technologies that I was able to bring into the classroom. But we decided to do a control study uh, between two grade 11 English classes. One was a basic level English class, comprised largely of new Canadians where English was not their first language, and the other was an advanced level English class. So I introduced a, a technology called Knowledge Forum into the classroom, and this was the platform students used to write their assignments, um, to receive feedback from me on their assignments. So I would provide feedback to each student on their paper, but every student in the class would have access to that feedback. So if I was marking a paper and I had some comments for improvement and things like that, other students could look at my comments and say, boy, you know, I'm doing the same thing with my paper. I can use the comments that Mr. Melnick has posted uh, to help with my paper. So here's what was interesting. We ran the study for one year in both English classes, and the results were really fascinating. The basic level students really took advantage of the multiple editing capability of technology. So every time I gave them an assignment, on average, these students would edit each assignment, each paper they required to do 23 times. The advanced level English group edited their work two to three times, so a significant difference. Now, of course, I had to change how I taught. And this is important because, as I said earlier on, teaching in an online environment requires you to adjust how you teach. So I had to allow more time for students to redo their work. So in other words, if they wrote a paper, I would provide feedback and a mark, all within the actual learning environment, and they would have the ability to go back and edit their work and resubmit it and I would mark it again. So it required me to spend a lot more time on students' papers. But what was fascinating is by the end of the year, almost every student from the basic level English course raised their English proficiency skills to such an extent that they were able to enter grade 12 in an advanced level English program. Basically skipping over the general stream altogether. So just for clarification, what's typical is if you're in a basic level English program and you improve your skills significantly, the next year you would enter into a general level English program. And again, if you improved your skills that year, you could move into the advanced level English program. Mm -hmm. And also too, you know, removing that stigma um, takes that focus off the, you know, 
self-actualization and their 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 their, their feelings of uh, inadequacy and taking that out of the picture lets them move forward in learning exactly at their own speed at their own pace and they take control of their own learning but again this takes a certain degree of intentionality you as a teacher have to be willing to change how you teach and there are a lot of teachers that won't want to do that. They think there's too much work involved in allowing a, a student to write a paper twice, to marking papers more than once. But to counterbalance that, it's a lot easier to mark papers, to annotate, to insert comments in papers that are done within an online learning environment. Because, of course, everybody's typing, so you're not trying to decipher handwriting. It's easier to mark, let's put it that way. I'll also add, it's much easier for a teacher to see how a student is progressing using technology-supported learning. Because, of course, you can compare all of their work over time. You can look at the first paper a student has written. You can look at the last paper that student has written, and you can see the improvements over time. It's also a huge benefit in terms of showing parents the progress of their child. I was able to stand in front of the parents in these two grade 11 courses and show them exactly how far their student had progressed during the course of the year. I could show them how many edits they'd done on their work, what they'd changed, the improvement to the writing style, and it was very, very easy for me to do so. Because, of course, most online learning environments and learning management systems have built-in analytics that will show you the level of contribution by the students, that will show you the level of editing, improvement, building on the ideas of other people, and so forth. So it really, at some levels, it seems a lot more work at the front end, but it really does pay dividends both in terms of student learning and in terms of teacher accountability and in reporting. So I guess the long and the short of things is that I, I believe virtual learning is here to stay. I don't think it's going to end when the pandemic winds down, at least I hope not, because I think it's a necessary skill. And I think we'd be doing our kids a real disservice if we did not give them the skill set to learn online. I think it's more than just a skill set. It's a mindset, and it's a necessary mindset out in the world of work. Definitely. I think so, too. I think it's uh, it's uh, something, too, that we'd like to hear uh, that people get back to us on, too, because it's, it's only going to be... Uh, growing and a constant learning experience for all of us. I think so. And I also think it's important to remember that businesses have already gone through this transition. They're already starting to become very comfortable using technology-supported learning and work environments. But in order for them to have made this adjustment, they had to recognize that they had to change their workflow processes in order to match the outcomes that they were looking for. The school system is still very rigid. It's still very industrial in its design. And we need to rethink that too. Because again, remember content has been democratized. We don't need teachers to provide content anymore. And students can find their own content. They know how to do it probably better than most teachers. But what they can't provide is context, an understanding of the content. And that's the teacher's role. This concludes this week's episode of The Space In Between. Cam and I will be back in a couple of weeks with another exciting and engaging topic. For what it's worth.